Hello and welcome to Dennis Anyone. I'm Dennis Hensley. I'm here in the beautiful home of Doug Spearman, who is a writer and director. He made the film Hot Guys with Guns. He's working on a new one now called Welcome Sinners. You may also know him from the TV series Noah's Ark and from just being an all-around creative, cool person. Wow, thank you. Now, this place is really wonderful. I feel, I've been to a party here before. You lived here a long time, right? 20 years, yeah. And what area would you say this is? Like, is this Miracle Mile? Where no, we? we're, we're kind of in this nowhere place in LA called, um, it's actually called Wilshire Vista. I love when they give things names like Valley Glen and Wilshire Vista. Yeah. And sometimes they catch on and sometimes they don't. Nobody ever uses it. I mean, yeah. you know, I think sometime in the late 90s, like 98 or 99, somebody found the original neighborhood sign in their basement. And there was a real, you know, they've been gentrifying, or not gentrifying, but trying to reclaim this whole neighborhood ever since the riots. Right. And um, they put up the sign, Wilshire Vista, 1928. Well, I'm always going to think of it as Wilshire Vista. I'm going to, I'm jumping on board. There you go. Well, that's what I tell people. And people yeah. look at me like, oh, well, I'm like, well, and I also say like, I'm Longwood adjacent because Longwood is right down. I've never even heard of Longwood though. Longwood so. is that area right below Hancock Park where it bumps into uh, Olympic. Okay. And that's called Longwood. I like Longwood. Longwood sounds dirty. Really? Long oh, now well, I get oh now, my God. Don't, no, now, now you get it. Oh, see? wow. Jesus, God. Because yeah. I always thought of it this really elegant estate. And yeah. now you've just really Now I've really it made it, it dirty. Yeah. Now, your place is decorated with such charm and like everything, oh. I feel like everything has a story. What's something that has a story? Everything has a story. What's um, one of your favorites? And then I'll describe it for people and maybe take a picture. Okay, well. To post on uh, my thing. Um, the painting over there, the boy standing on the pylon. Yes, there's a boy standing on a pylon. Is he over water? Yeah, he is. Yeah. On one side is uh, is a saltwater pool. On the other side is a uh, chlorine pool. Okay. And that's at the Bondi Bathing Club in Sydney, Australia. Wow. And I had a boyfriend. I went to Australia for Mardi Gras in 95. Okay. And I think my second or third day, I met a guy, a painter named Paul... And um, broke up his relationship. Okay. And um, welcome. Did, you hadn't even recovered from jet lag yet, and I, you'd yeah. already done that. I broke up a guy's relationship. Okay. And he brought that on our first date. We went out to dinner, and he gave me that and a pair of his old painting boots, like um, those Australian sort of yeah. riding boots. I think they're called wall They're not wallabies. Wall whatever. They're kind they're of like, anyway. But I used to own Blunstons. That's what they were. Oh they were made yeah. By and they were covered in paint, and I had them for years. And he gave me that on our second date. And then he came back to L.A., and he painted. The, the room had too many squares for him, so he painted all those paintings over the... He researched the architecture and how houses would have been painted like this 200 years ago, and he did that by hand. Wow. Um, this stuff. Yeah, the overdoor paintings. Overdoor, like, they're like stencily kind of things that go over the paintings. Wow, I want one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. How long were you together? Uh, six months. Okay. Yeah, six months. Long enough to get some shit done. Hello. <laughs> you better come. You better get here with ready to go. Oh, I bet he had that accent too. Oh yeah, totally. And he was crazy as a bed bug. Really? Yeah, Do you he's... still keep in touch with him? Uh huh. Yeah, okay, we're that's Facebook. good. I'm really good about keeping in touch with my exes. That's those good. Those are the chairs. Those white chairs with the arms. Yeah. They've been reupholstered only one time in the last sixty years. Yeah. And those were the good chairs in our living room. When you were growing up, uh huh. That you only used on special occasions. No, we used the living room all the time. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, what else is special? Like I don't know, like uh, that painting of the orchestra in the corner. Yes. Was I bought was the very first piece of fine art that I bought, and I bought it on Sunday, September third, 
1988. Okay. No, 1989. And I bought it in Paris on my very first trip to Paris, and I was really stoned. My best friend and I were really stoned and laying under the Eiffel Tower. Did you, were you not so stoned that you didn't barter? Did you did you buy it from? Oh, did I don't you buy it in a museum? No, no, no. Like, we bought it at an art gallery. A gallery, and yeah. And I had him break it out of the frame. Yeah. And then I had to carry it back from Paris, and that thing has been all over the country with me. But you still love it. I love it. In other words, you didn't get unstoned and go, what was I thinking? No, 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 no. no. It's beautiful. Thank you. So that was the first painting. I I, I like that. Well, the reason I bought it is because the guy in the front playing the the cello looks, looks black to me. And... It's very, and he's yes, probably, he does. He does. It's impressionistic. Does. We're going to take pictures of all these people so you can see it. Only because it's an orchestra, they're all wearing tuxedos, and it's probably because they're such strong, well, I like the immediacy of the painting, and I love the the, the rapidness of the breaststrokes. I was an art history They writer. look like they're on a roller coaster. Yeah. And yeah. I, it may be just be the strong side lighting, but yeah. it's very rare to find images of black people in paintings, but that, it, at least it used to be, but right. it still is really in fine art. And um, and I wanted that. I, I love it. I can see that. He's in the front. Yeah, he's, he's in the He's the front. biggest one. Yeah, first chair. First chair. That's go. right. That's my job. And, and that kind of, <laughs> that epitomizes my growing up. Yeah. Because, I mean, the way you see the house is very, it's not that different from the way I grew up, from the way my parents decorated the house. I mean, a lot of the furniture in here belonged to my parents. Yeah. The table over there was a wedding gift to my mom and dad. Um the buffet in the dining room was my parents' buffet. Those are Where did you grow up? Maryland. Right on. I was raw, I was born in Washington D.C. in 1962, and we moved to Maryland in '69, basically because of the riots after Martin Luther King died. Do, would and you remember anything about that? Absolutely, I remember everything about it. I remember a lot of it. What's I the most vivid memory of that time? Well, I have two. Um, the day that he died, the riots broke out in D.C. And my dad, they, that, evidently they called all the parents and said, come get your kids. And it was really, really early. Right. And in the day, and I was at a school called Rudolph, Rudolph Elementary. And um, dad, on the way home, decided to go to the grocery store. And I remember... Because, do you remember, maybe, I don't think you're as old as I am, but G.I. Joe's. though. G.I. Joe's used to be 11 Big. and a half inches tall. Yes, and they had that furry hair. Yeah, were, exactly. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Well, the reason I bring this up is because there were soldiers outside of the giant food store, which was a, it's a grocery train in D.C. and Maryland. And I just remember this guy standing, there were soldiers ringing the grocery store. Right. And I realize now that they were protecting it from looters, but I'd never seen a soldier before. And he looked just like a giant G, like yeah. a life-size G.I. Joe. And I also remember, what else do I remember? I remember watching his funeral, and I was at my babysitter's house, and it was just me and her, and she was off doing something in another room, and I remember she gave me spaghetti for lunch, and I remember the stillness of the room, but she was in the kitchen doing something, and I was in the living room. And um, her name was Eloise. She was my godmother. And I remember just the light coming through the room, and I remember the TV, and I remember how still the room was. And I can even still see the dust particles in the air. Wow. 
Do you remember the adults around you just being different, being emotional, being, you know what I mean? Like, no, no, I don't. I don't remember anything about them. In fact, you know, I moved here in 91 and I don't know, nine months later, we had the riots, yeah. the Rodney King riots. Right. And I had a complete panic attack. Like Where were you out. living? I was, I was living on, uh, right off of Fairfax and just the first street of above Melrose and Waring, and there was some serious shit going down over there. And we had to, I was working at CBS, and um, I was working as a producer in daytime at CBS over at Studios, at Television right. City on right. Fairfax and Beverly. And, you know, that's a pretty, have you ever been in there? It's really big and sort of like factory-like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know. I've been to tapings there, yeah. like, so you think you can dance and Right, stuff. exactly. Yeah. So my dad and I were on the phone, and he was telling, he was really sort of worried and I was like dad don't worry it's about like it's like being worried about something that's happening at the capital the US capital right for when you're at our house right because we lived exactly seven miles as the crow, fl crow flies from the capital right and um, all of a sudden the alarms went off in the building and this uh, voice came over the loudspeaker said all non-essential personnel please evacuate the building all non-essential personnel, please evacuate wow. the building. And I'm like, Dad, I gotta go. And it was like the it was like the last scene before Doctor Knows, um, factory island factory blows up. People were running in the halls, going both ways. Do you know what I mean? It was right. Like, and there was one funnel out of the building called the artist entrance, which is a hallway about this about as wide as this room, and it's the way the actors and the employees go in and out of the building. And it was crazy. So it was, it was like a disaster movie. Like it a, was. It was yeah. literally like the first thing I thought about. In fact, I watched Dr. No not too long ago. And I thought, wow, this is exactly like the end of a James Bond movie before right. like the bad before guy's the lair yeah. explodes. Wow. And you, but was that when your panic attack happened when you were there? Or was it in the aftermath of it? It was in the aftermath. Well, it was kind of in the aftermath of that. I mean, it yeah. was a really weird time. And my neighbor and I were standing on our... I was living in an apartment complex it was a, that we used to call Melrose uh, Place, The Dark Side. And yeah. um, this guy, we were, <laughs> Tim and I were standing on our, our lawn, and this guy runs by and sort of diagonally across our lawn with an axe. Holy shit. And we're like, dude, where are you going with that? Yeah. And he said, there's a fight at the Gap, which is where the Urban Outfitter is now, um, on Melrose. Oh, shit. Yeah, there used yeah. to be a Gap. Okay. And he said, there's a fight at the Gap, and I'm going to go help break it up. With an axe. With an axe. And this was some white kid in his 20s. Yeah. And I was just like, I, okay, I'm going. I'm leaving. And I, you know, I was like shaking, and I couldn't breathe. And I remember driving to Santa Monica, uh, Venice. I stayed at a friend of mine's townhouse in Venice for like two days, hiding out. And yeah. it was like, it was crazy. Yeah. I remember, I was in the valley, so it wasn't uh, as... Uh, around me, but I remember the coverage, and I remember getting phone calls about it, and and it was a weird. That was a weird time. It was like living in Beirut, but all yeah. of, this whole block of Fairfax on yeah. this side completely changed because yeah. a lot of those stores got burned out. Yeah. Now you're currently in the process of making your second feature film. Yeah. It's called Welcome Sinners. Yes. And I've been watching clips online. It looks really good. Thank you. Your actors are terrific. Yeah. There's a really sexy couple in the middle of it. It seems mm -hmm. and. Um, Tell us a little bit about the story of it, or the, the plot. Well, first of all, let me just back up and tell you that it was originally a novel I wrote. Okay. And I, you know, I never came to L.A. to be a screenwriter. Right. I did not 
come here as one of those people that had a, you know, I all I wanted to do was act and maybe direct, and direct. And yeah. I thought I would just act and then direct commercials for the rest of my life. And like about in February, I moved here in September of 91. And in February of 92, I got this, I, I suddenly saw these lines. I saw this story in my head and it started with, I love you. And that was the first line. It, says, it started with, I love you. Okay. And Jack's whole world changed. And, um, and I knew how it began and I knew how it ended. And so I sat around noodling with this, writing the story for a while. And then it was 90, 95, I read the, wrote the novel. And then in 97, I turned it into a play. And it ran for a year at the Beverly Hills Playhouse. Wow. My first review in Variety, which was awesome. That's amazing. It yeah. ran for a year? Yeah. It ran as a part of a... It was, I, it, I only took a scene out of it and used it as a, as a one act. Right. And it ran for a year. What's really funny is that Jay Hughley and Al Sapienza, who are who played Peter and Jack in the play, are also in the movie. Al Sapienza yeah. plays the therapist, and he was at one time one of the you know. And then and Jay Hughley, who you definitely know playing the sheriff in um, Twelve Years a Slave, he played Bruce Lieberman in High Guys with Guns. He, I mean, right. he's on TV all the time. Um, he was actually Pete. He was actually Daryl's character. Oh, wow. Yeah, so the movie's about this guy named Jack. It's about these two guys, actually. And it's about a guy named Jack Dickinson who's married. He's 15 years into his marriage. He's got two great kids, a wife who loves him, who owns an art gallery. And they live in Philadelphia. And they actually live on the main line outside of Philadelphia. And he commutes into work every day. And um, they go to his best friend's birthday party one night. And... It's just another party at Eric's, except this waiter won't leave him alone. And finally, he ends up having sex with the waiter in the basement. And it, what it does is it unlocks something in Jack that he's been keeping sealed, right? Basically, since college, right? Like he hasn't had an, a, a physical contact with a man since he was in college, right? And so now what? So now on the way home, he decides to every once in a while he'll stop in a bar on the way to the train station on his right. way home and for a drink. And then one night he, some guy buys him a drink and he ends up going home with he ends up having sex with him, and then it becomes a pattern. And then one night he meets this guy named Peter, and Peter is black and he's about the same age as Jack, <clears throat> but Peter made very different choices in his life. Peter's openly gay, right? You know? But Peter's problem is that he has a <clears throat> Excuse me. He has a history of falling for unavailable men. Right. Completely unavailable men. And he and Jack go home together one night, and what should have been a one-night stand turns into a love affair. Right. Because they're really great for each other. And uh, Jack and Pete have some decisions to make about how they go forward and, and what who are they going to be. And Pete's father and stepmother love him. And, you know, it was originally... Well, I'll go into that a little bit. But Pete's dad doesn't have a problem with him being gay, which right. is kind of a big deal. I wanted to portray as a black dad who had no problem with his right. son. But he has a problem with the fact that his son chooses unavailable men all the time. Right. He gets involved with married men. Right. And Jack's best friend, Eric, once has always been jealous of Jack and his relationship and can't understand why Jack would leave his, his perfect wife for a man. Right. Because he would never do that. Right. And, you know, they come to a situation where they have to, where it's, you know, like, what are we going to do next? And one, and they both make decisions, and, and I don't want to tell you what the decision is, but 
they both make decisions that propel them in the opposite directions. Right. And um, Jack is played by... Scott Bailey. Scott Bailey, who's really handsome and <laughs> really good. Yeah, he's really good. What, you know, I got... I got well, Scott Bailey was in um, Tears for Bobby. Yeah, Prayers for Bobby. Prayers for Bobby. Yeah. Was he the, he was the guy. He was the but boyfriend. he was like a teenage. No, he was, no, the, he boyfriend. was the boyfriend. Right. Yeah, he was the boyfriend who has to go up and talk to Sigourney Weedy. Right, at, right, right. At the funeral and all that. Mm. The thing about Scott is, I mean, Scott's just drop dead gorgeous. So, you know, I have to tell Scott all the time. I mean, you got it when you came and sat in the restaurant with me. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's so interesting, like what Scott looks like in person and what the camera does to Scott. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, but he and Daryl have fantastic chemistry, and we rehearse. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I, you know, I come from theater, so I'm all about rehearsal. And when you do a, a film where you don't have a whole lot of budget to get it done, right? You don't have a million takes. You don't have a million takes, so they have to bring it. They have to come with it on the set, right. and it has to be, and it has to be, you know, it has to be, you know, two take proof. Right. But and then they bring stuff to it that I don't even expect. Yeah. Because they've had history with each other. And there's a good, the one part of the good thing about us not shooting, kind of having to go on hiatus, is that they their history is only getting richer. Right. That's great. Now, Daryl, you mentioned, is Daryl Stevens. Daryl Stevens. Who is, uh, we know from Noah's Ark. He right. was Noah on Noah's Ark. And you guys have stayed friends through the whole, well, you, did you know him before Noah's Ark? Yeah, Daryl and I were friends before Noah's Ark. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Excellent. And um, we, we just always have, I love Daryl. He's like a little brother to me. He's also my harshest critic. Really? Yeah, and Daryl proofreads. Daryl's always the first person, or, well, I think John's probably the first person now, my partner. But Daryl used to be the first person to read all my scripts. Yeah. And he would lay it out. Yeah, he was yeah. always great about that. And yeah. he's psycho about spelling. <laughs> That's good. And there's actually a it's joke good about to that. Have. Yeah, there's a joke about that in the script. Yeah. So where are you now in the process? We are twenty percent into the movie. Um, I shot four days in October, November last year because I wanted to. I mean, there's just something about fall. Yeah. In an eastern city that looks really cool. Yeah. And then. <laughs> Then disaster struck. Not really disaster for me, but it was, you know, we went on this adventure of trying to find the rest of the money because it's, it's, it's a movie that's going to cost, you know, a, more than significant, pretty much twice what Hot Guys With Guns did. Right. And because it's a, first of all, we have to travel. Yeah. We have to stay. And it's a movie that takes place back east. Right. You know, it'd be different if I were shooting another film here. Right. But still, I want to up the quality of the film. Well, just the clips that I saw, I just thought it looked great. That's I thought the it point. looked great. <laughs> Thank you. So it's supposed to look like a fifties or sixties, early sixties love story. Right. You know? And some of the movies that you listed that were your touchstones were like making love and movies that like they don't seem to make adult dramas anymore. It's either right. superheroes or people are on TV. Right. So I was like, ooh, I wanna I like those movies. I wanna see a movie like that. Right. And if you notice all the camera works very elegant and very yeah. slow. So it, it should look like it came out of, like, uh, you know, Universal 1960. Yeah. You know, or Paramount. I love like it. Now, um, is there a crowdfunding campaign going on now? Can people yes, check it out and there are. help you out? What yeah. can they do? Um, if you go to GoFundMe.com. GoFundMe.com. And look up Welcome Sinners. Right. And, or, or even just search Welcome Sinners or search my name. It'll come up. 
and we're only five thousand dollars away from our goal. That's amazing. Yeah, so you're gonna make it. Yeah, so please help. And I'll put the link on my Facebook page for DennisAnyone.com. It's Where also on my Facebook page for awesome. the Welcome Sinners uh, for the movie, and it's also on my personal page. Yeah. So any of the movie photos that you click on and yeah. see it'll be great now i saw that you shot a scene in front of the love logo in philadelphia because i was in philadelphia and i made sure that i i had a picture in front of the love logo yeah well it's it's a sculpture it's a sculpture by robert indiana yeah um and it was used it was kind of like the cover of i don't know well you, do you remember love story yeah the ali mcgraw movie uh-huh yeah well it was a book you know mm -hmm. eric siegel yeah and that's right. the cover of the book Mm. That was the design for the cover of the book, and Robert Indiana copied it. And That's perfect. It. And Philadelphia is also the city of brotherly love. Yeah. And I wanted that. I wanted to shoot there and with that statue, that piece of sculpture in the sort of background, because it's the first scene. That scene you're talking about is between Carla and Jack. Yes. The husband She's and wife. She's great. Keely Keely Lefkowitz, who yeah. was in, who's an old friend of mine. We're classmates. She was actually played the bad, bad actress who falls down in the street in Hot Guys Are Guns. Okay. And I, I reuse... These, these are, this, this is, is my like your rep company. company. Yeah, it's my rep I company. I love it. And, and I wanted to put something where they... It's, just, it's a very important scene for the two of them. It's right. the first time they've seen each other in a long time. And I wanted to subliminally underpin the scene because you can tell there's a lot of love between them right and i just i like to under i like to do subliminal things right that give you the audience sort of clues about how to react like if you actually look at that scene again and you look at the scene where the part of it's where they're shot over the where it's shot over their shoulder yeah there are a lot of times in this particular movie where the symbol of a heart repeats itself over right. and over again like in their hands like you could actually draw a heart like when when they kiss when anybody comes together you like there's always a heart but if you look at that scene and if you look at the shot where it's shooting the skyline is behind them right the, i positioned that bench that bench wasn't really there but we positioned that bench so that we could see this there's a when they come together they form a heart but if you look at it the way the buildings are, there's this Art Deco arc, uh, skyscraper in the background that is that does like this. Yeah. So the heart is actually broken, but comes back together. Wow. That's really fun. Is yeah. that part of the reel that people will see if they go to GoFundMe.com? Yeah. yeah. So they're going to get to see that little heart Easter egg. Yeah, exactly. Now, the movie you made before, Hot Guys with Guns, a ton of fun. I know that you've been developing it for a while. Oh, Jesus. And yeah. I remember you talking about at, at Outfest when you premiered it. And you said that you were inspired by my friend Glenn Gaylord, who has previously been on the, the podcast, and he made the movie I Do. Yeah. And you just decided, fuck it, I'm going to make this. Well, you know, it, you know, I took Glenn out to lunch and I talked to him about the process, but it was really David Ross, the guy that wrote it. And right, right, right. The star. David and I are old friends. And David was writing I Do when I was writing the first draft of Hot Guys With Guns, and we would trade drafts. Like, I read right. five drafts and, of, of I Do, and I think he read four or five drafts of Hot Guys With Guns. Right. And the year before we were at the Ford and Outfest, John, my partner, and I went to support David at the Ford, and right. we went to see it. And I was sitting there. I was really happy for him, and the crowd was really stoked, and I was also angry. 
because, oh my God, David's movie is on screen, and I followed his whole crowd. Well, you guys, campaign. you guys start, you guys kind of had the same trajectory. Yeah, and I said his movie's on screen at the Ford, and mine is in my laptop on the corner of my desk. What's wrong with this picture? Exactly, like that shit's going to change right now. And so that was in July, August first. I left my job, and I said I am doing a movie. Come the beginning of October, I'm doing it. I admire that so much. It takes a lot of balls and a lot of courage. What was your job that you left? <laughs> I was at E. Yeah. I was at, well. I used to run into you in yeah, the building. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes. I was at NBC and Universal. And I was there too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, NBC Universal, and I was in the advertising and promotions department for, you know, I basically handled E and style yeah. internationally. Okay. That was rough. Yeah. That's a hard place to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But well, you know what? It got me out of a lot of debt and it opened up a lot of doors and it got me thinking and I, it probably pushed me into, because I'd been a, a writer, producer, director in TV promos and advertising since 1985. Right. That was sort of your bread and butter for yeah, a long time. Exactly. Kind of like journalism was for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I thought, and I was about to turn 50 and I thought, I can't believe I'm still doing this. And I'm like, if I don't jump out of this now... I got, I got to do it. It's the same reason I left, you know, it's one of the reasons I left ABC in 2005 to do Noah's Ark because I realized I was making tons of money. I had great, I had a great job. I was making a lot of money. You were at really ABC. Happy. I was a creative, I was the creative director for ABC Daytime. What did that mean? You oversaw the soaps? You, uh-huh. All yeah. the advertising for the soap. Right. And for the, uh, for the talk shows. You picked like the All My Children font? Yeah. Wow. In fact, I reshot the a shot I helped help design and shoot the open for the show at that okay. one time. When you were there, who was your secret favorite soap hunk? Oof. Like, oh wait, maybe we need to call him in for a shoot. <laughs> well, Cameron Matheson and I, I thought he was the you know he's he was hot. from he was, All My Children. Yeah, he was. He was hot as a biscuit. And um, <laughs> just out of the oven. And I got to hang out with him a lot and see him. And Cameron's an athlete. And it was pretty apparent that, like, I, well, he knew he had gay, I mean, like a gay audience. And I want to tell you something about Cameron. If you really do some digging, you can find a, a, a shot of Cameron from the, hang on, International Mail Catalog. Oh, fuck. Yeah. That was the best. That when was, that would oh, arrive. my God. Yeah. Masturbating hand gesture. Yeah. Um... But Cameron would, you know, he was always athletic and he would walk into this, he would walk onto the, my sets, he'd have a, like a shirt with a big cock on. He's like, look, don't I have a big cock? And I'm like, wow. And then he'd like, I just biked here, you know, 64 blocks, want to touch my butt, my butt's really hard. And I'm like, I would love to. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, Cameron and I, like, I got to meet all these guys and become friends with them. And it was like, if I don't keep a grip on this, literally, it's going to become sexual... Right, it's just going to like like, I see a lot of HR. Yeah, a big file for you on HR. (laughs) But he started it. He started it. He started it. But you know who I really fell in love with, and who is a really but because I fell in love with him as a person, and we are really great friends. And that whole like the crush thing, the the physical aspect of the crush thing went away pretty fast because I really got to know him and I really got to care about him, and we were still really good friends. It's Kamar de los Reyes. Who was on? I know one the life name. One life to live. Yeah, he was nice. On one life to live, and we're awesome. still really good friends. He and his wife, uh, Sherry, who's on the Fosters, right. just had twins. Fantastic. So, 
Yeah, that was it's a, lot a good fun. little community of people. Yeah, and, like and, you have in your life. Yeah, and part of my job as creative director was taking those monkeys out to lunch or dinner, and yeah, that was crazy. We would go. I would have ten or twelve soap actors and their posses out to dinner. You know, at like Bob's Big Boy or whatever. no, 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 no. You I'm thinking to... of whatever's over by ABC. No, no, I, I need mean, to step it up travel, if you're not. Oh, we would right. Travel and like I would get a, a and note, the fans like, must have been nuts when you would go out. Crazy. We would, yeah. you know, like body block them. Yeah. Oh, you know who else was a f- personal favorite? And it's funny because I'm not really into blondes, but Jacob Young, who played J.R. Jr. on All My Children. Okay. I still want to work with Jacob in something. Yeah. He's amazing. And I was like, you're perfect. Yeah. I mean, he's scary perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot to deal with, some of this stuff. Um, now, one of the reasons I'm talking to you now is you posted something this week on Facebook mm. uh, in the aftermath of... Um, Robin Williams' passing, and it was really moving to me, and also just your journey and stuff like that, but I thought, I, I want to talk to Doug about his movie, and I want to, he'd be great to have on this podcast, but you, you told a little bit about your story, about your, your struggles over, over depression, depression yeah. and things like that, and also the stuff that, also something that I got out of your post was that there were times where something really exciting was happening in your life, and from the outside it would look amazing, and mm-hmm. from the inside... It was not. And I've had those experiences too. And I think a lot of people have. And I just, I really admired what you said and your courage in putting it out there. What was, what was the result of putting that out there? Did people reach out to you? or? Oh did my people, God, what, yeah. I mean, my heart blew wide open, certainly at the response that I got. I mean, I got a lot of people who private messaged me or texted me and emailed me. yeah. Uh, but who didn't want to go public. And I was amazed at the stories that people would share with yeah. me and the conversations I was having. And then, you know, I, I put some stuff up and it's pretty, it's been pretty popular, but I was really amazed at the, the, the response and the, the love and the generosity of people and the, the feedback that I got. And, and, you know, I did it for a couple of reasons. I got to meet Robin Williams during the first comic, what was the name of that, uh, the thing that he... Comic would, Relief. Comic Relief. I got to meet him on during the very first Comic Relief right. tour. Him, Whoopi, and... Billy and Crystal. Billy Crystal. And um, I, was a, I was a photographer. I was a videographer for BET News back then. Right. And I thought it was pretty amazing. And I just remembered how... Like, I can't think of a... I mean, he was a genius. A genius. And... I was really struck by his death. And I mean, it it really took me down because first of all, he was a cultural touchstone. And so much of our humor, what what was funny in the late 20th century was because of Robin Williams. And um, he changed comedy, he changed stand-up, and you know, he tried and he never gave up. And and I know what it's like from personal experience to be both idolized and miserable at the same time. Right. You know, because like I told you when I did Noah's Ark, I mean, like I had a, like I was an executive at ABC. I was two jobs from being president of the day part. Yeah. And I had a TV show. As a, and I, as and an actor. As an actor. I was, I was. Living the dream. I was living the dream. And I was like. Could you do both at once? I tried. I tried for two months and it was, they were like, no, this isn't going to work. Logo made me leave. Really? Yeah. Logo made me leave. Fuck. ABC. And there was some, and there was some, there was a lot of like sort of jealousy and pushback and. 
just you know corporate political bullshit at ABC with a couple of people, and and I was actually in Philadelphia on a shoot, and one of the actors had gone buck wild in a hotel room and destroyed the hotel room. Wow! Destroyed the hotel room, and it had been an over like I had to take out. I had been shooting on a Friday for high guys for uh, Noah's Ark. Got on a red eye. Got to Philadelphia first thing in the morning. Got two hours sleep. Had to shoot a commercial with a thousand extras and six soap actors. I had a big confrontation with my VP about something somebody had said about me, which was a complete and utter lie and fabrication. And I was like, who lies like that? And um, I'm always stunned when people tell like easily traceable lies. I mean, like, right. that's a stupid lie. But it was like, why are you not supporting me? You know, it was, I was overwrought. And my mother died. Like a month before, and my dog had died a month before my mother, so I was on my my mom and my dog were my longest relationships. You know, right. I, mean, I had a buff for fourteen years, and I was in Philadelphia, and it had just gone to crap. Everything had just gone to crap, and this actor destroyed a hotel room, and I was on a plane on the way back, and I was praying for the plane to crash. Holy shit. I was praying. I remember it was, what, what was it? I was watching a, a Drew Barrymore movie about the Boston, about her love for the Boston Red Sox. It was some, you know. Yes, little, Fever Pitch. Fever Pitch. Which it, I feel like was underrated. But it was actually a really good movie. Yeah, I mean, it was I mean, underrated. That's the thing that kept me from like drinking on the plane. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I'm sober. Right. And um, I was, I was like, if that movie hadn't been as funny as I probably was, I probably, my, I don't know if I'd drink or not, but I, something was going to happen. But I was praying for that American Airlines flight to fucking crash into Pennsylvania or something. Right. And then I got back and I called my sponsor and I talked to him and I talked to some other people and I just said, okay, that's it. I got to make some breaks. So I walked away. From the ABC job. From the ABC job. And you have to do stuff like that from time to time in order to go on to the next level. But, but hanging on through it. But hanging on through the aftermath, like we do things, we don't understand the journey of why we do it. And it's so hard to hang on when you have depression issues. It's hard to hang on when you have, you know, low self-esteem or whatever. Even if the world, like I always tell people, don't, don't just live on, don't believe my Facebook page. Right. Do you know what I mean? Life is not like Facebook. No. You know? What, What I think was, I was sort of avoiding... I didn't want to look at a lot of posts about Robin Williams. It, you know, it's sometimes you're trying to protect yourself from stuff. And then I started reading it, and I was like, wow, there's, there's, I, I was moved by it. And uh, people, people are, there's a lot of pain in the world. Everyone goes through stuff. Mm-hmm. And in moments like that, sometimes people air that out a little bit, and, and it makes you, it saddens you, but it makes you feel compassionate, it makes you feel less alone, it makes you feel like, I need to be a little nicer. I need to not judge people so harshly. I don't know. It's, it's something I resisted and then I w- ended up being moved by what I saw, especially your post. Well, you know, part of it's the... I have to sit on the floor. Um, That's okay. Part of it's the selfishness of... You know, because I get hit with a lot of... Fa- a lot, you know, Noah's Ark meant a lot of things to a lot of people and it made people very happy and it was, it was a real touchstone and cornerstone for a lot of people and a lot of gay black men and women who fell in love with it, who got to see themselves finally for a long time and you know people call me chance all the time and stuff like that's that. that's a cool name to have though uh you know i have a complicated history with that because again every time somebody says that name to me it's like pressing it's like opening a wound 
because it was so hard for me. So interesting. And you know, people. And one of the things that I wanted to do with the post, I guess, was to let people know that this really wasn't what you think it was for me. Yeah. Yeah. For and, us. and and a lot and and looking at Robin Williams' life, he's rich and famous and da 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 da. da. Why? What has he got to complain about? Kind of thing. You don't know what's going on. I. Um, this is a similar theme. It's not anything like that scale. But I remember when um, I did the Kathy Griffin, My Life on the D list, the first season I was one of the main gays. Yeah. And I remember, and when the show started airing, there was a lot of tumult amongst the players. And it was, I was in a lot of emotional pain around all of it. It was really intense and rough. And I got through it and all of that stuff. But I remember going to New York and the show was just starting to air. And I went out to, with an old friend and he goes, oh my God, this is so exciting. This must be the most fun thing. The show's going to be on TV. You're going to be on TV. And I'm like, it's the fucking worst. And I right. kind of fell apart. Right. But it was that moment of like what it looks like from the outside versus what it is. Well, you know, I read a lot of biographies. Yeah. You know, and if you ever read like Vivian Lee's biography or Montgomery Cliff's biography, I mean, first of all, creative people are crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a propensity towards madness because I think there's a fine line. Like, you get all of this information from wherever it comes from and it's going through you constantly and you have to do something with it. I mean, I really think acting and directing and, and, and certainly writing worse than anything, you're really channeling. You know, yeah. I'm very clear that I'm the lantern. I'm not the light. Right. And that, that stuff going through you all the time and needing to come out through the world is kind of like being forced to, to do stuff that, you know, is frightening and horrifying and, and, time-consuming and relationship-destroying and all of that stuff. So if you really read about the lives of creative people, it's filled with madness and chaos. Right. You know, think about how many beautiful actresses there are in the world, even now, who have had, like, shitty, horrible relationships. Look, yeah. Holly Berry married yeah. two guys that cheated and beat her. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think there's a tr an attraction. I, I think we're stuck with the dark. Yeah. You know, we just had to learn to incorporate the dark. Right. And people, you know, when you're not on television or you're not in a movie or, you know, like I'm very aware of the blessing that I get every day to wake up and I have worked my whole life in an area that, you know, this many people want to work in and this many of us get to actually do it. Right. You know, and my parents resisted it. They didn't want me to do it. And I did it anyway. And I think my life has been incredibly successful because I realized very early on that this is a, a marathon and not a sprint. Yeah. But by the same token, people get this idea that our lives are all golden. But look at how many celebrity kids killed themselves. Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward's son killed himself. Yeah. Mary Tyler Moore's son killed himself. Yeah. Her only child. So when you look at the when you look at what looked like really glamorous, wonderful relationships, and then you sort of peel back the curtain. And it's not always, you know, ball gowns and movie openings. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you got to come home and you're like, oh, my God, what was it? I remember, like, getting a really up-close and personal look at the dark side on my very first big red carpet. We got there late for the BET's 25th anniversary show. And this was, was during Noah's Ark. During Noah's Ark. It was our first big red carpet. And the limo was late. Patrick was late. Everything was late. And it was traffic, traffic, traffic. And we got out, and we got there right as freaking Gail, Oprah's best friend Gail, got out of her limo. Yeah. And I'm like, no one's going to see us. No one knows who the hell we are. So we just kind of like walked down the red carpet, and nobody really, you know, there was an announcer, but like, 
nobody really, I mean, we got out really literally right behind KL and we're like, we're yeah. fucked. We're just, yeah. just walk around her. But I remember, like, it got to be a point where, like, it was like everybody had to get in, you know, it's like that moment before they're going to start the taping. Right. And I was shoulder to shoulder with MC Hammer. Right. And this was September in LA, so it's kind of warm. It, was, it wasn't hot, hot. Right. But it was warm. And he was wearing um, a fox fur. <laughs> and Versace sunglasses. And he had full makeup on. And I just remember the look of desperation on his face and on the face of a couple of other the, the celebrities that were around me of like, please notice me, please look at me. And I was like, he's wearing full makeup. Yeah. Full and face. Full face. And I'm like, this is a black rapper. And I'm like, what is this? I'm like, maybe I should be wearing makeup. Yeah. Um, but I just remember thinking, look at that. Yeah. Look at that. And that's the other thing that people don't tell you. Like I had an actor teacher, acting teacher said, they teach you how to, we teach you how to act, but we don't teach you how to be famous. Yeah. And if you don't handle your shit right now, it's only going to get worse. And I was very cognizant of that because, you know, it's tough when you've got all this stuff in your mind. And, you know, I'm, I still think of myself as a 13 year old kid sitting in a bedroom in Hyattsville, Maryland, looking out the window across this maple forest, wanting to get the hell out on the other side of the hill. Yeah. Knowing that there was somewhere else for you. Yeah, exactly. I relate to that. I knew that... I wasn't unhappy where I was, but I knew that it wasn't where I needed to be. Up? A small town in Arizona. Holbrook, Arizona. Okay. You know, yeah. and I knew that there was nothing about my family world or anything that was, like, for me. Like, I knew that it was going to be something else. Yeah. Well, you know? I, you know, I grew up in D.C., and we lived five minutes over the district line. It's the center of the freaking universe. Yeah. You know, I grew up with politics in the family. I mean, I was very aware. We had, you know, museums and symphonies and, you know, my cousins and I call it our haute bourgeois yeah. uh, upbringing. But I didn't want to be in Washington. Yeah. I wanted to be anywhere else but. Yeah. I actually wanted to be here from the time I saw, like, I saw a Doris Day movie where she drove a white convertible and. They had a house with a pool, and I'm like, I've got to move. That's where that's I want where, to move. That's where I need <laughs> to be. I need, I need a white convertible, and yeah. I need a pool. Now, when Noah's Ark was on, you said that there was a lot of behind the scenes you were struggling with stuff. Was it for the most of the run, or was it just at the beginning? Or no, did it? I, everything, every time I. Whether it was that, that stretch of time from 2004 to 2008. Because you did how many? You we did. did uh, there are 18 episodes and there's a movie. Yeah. And every time they would call me and say, it's time to go back to work or we're going to do something, some bullshit would happen in my life. Some, right. Or, or, or there was a, you know, there were some personality clashes on the set. Um, and I was just like, oh my God, what's going to happen now? Like we've got, okay, so first season I had a couple suicides. I was going through my own thing. Second season. You had friends commit suicide. Yeah. Or people in your life. Yeah. Okay. And then I had an ex named Drew who we were together for two and a half years and divorced for four. And we had had a big fight. Like we were, or Drew and I had this line, like he would not get out of my life. And um, I was terrified something was going to happen. Some violence was going to occur because he had a history of violence in his life. And I was at... We, we had done the second, we were doing the second season in Vancouver, Canada, and a friend of mine, Greg, called me and said, I have something to tell you. And I said, what? He said, Drew was found dead. Drew had died of a heart attack. Holy shit. And we were the same age. He was 44. And within six months, 
five of my, what I call the boys of my season. Like when I moved here in 91, we were all, you know, late 20s. We were the guys of that. That was our season. That was your like, season. You, you were the out. cock of the walks. Yeah, we were, yeah, yeah, yeah. We were the new boys in town. Yeah. And Where was, was your hangout? Uh, uh, the Probe. Right on. Um, God, it's so weird. The Probe. They're all gone. Yeah. La Fabula on Sunday afternoons. You remember okay. La Fabula? No. La Fabula is where Baby Blue's Rib House is. It okay. used to be the spot on Sunday afternoon. It was a it was a Mexican restaurant. And you had to be seen at La Fabula having margaritas. Right on. Um, but so you, it, it was, was your season. It, it was our season. And within Drew died June 2nd. And within five months, by the end of sep- by by the end of October, November, five of the boys of my season died suddenly. And how many would you say were in the group total? Well, uh, was it like, like ten or twelve? There or about fifteen, twenty. Right, but like, so like a big chunk. Yeah, and like guys I'd been per- like guys I lived with. Uh, a guy I lived with died. Two guys I lived with died. Um, my next door neighbor died. A guy who was the uh, you know we there, there was like white Doug and black Doug and white Doug died of cancer like got cancer and, and like was dead it within you know like in just such a rapid rapid time. What frightening. do you do with that when it exactly. happens? Exactly. What do you do with that? What do you do with it? How do you? Well, when you don't have drugs and alcohol, you shop. Okay. Or you fuck. Or okay. something. You know what I mean? So right. Because like, you know my feelings are going to look for a rock to hide under. Right. So. You know, I would hide in relationships or hide in some other kind of drama to, um, I had a very complicated relationship going on too. And, uh, I would do something to, you know, like you're looking for some other pain to, to cover up that pain. Right. To get busy in something else. So I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how I stayed not crazy. Right. I mean, I came back and I did a documentary with, for the national, for United Negro College Fund with, um, Aretha Franklin, that was pretty high. That was a highlight. I did a lot of shopping. Yeah. Like, I, I did. And then I went for a year, I went traveling. Yeah. It's good. I think traveling is great. It takes you out of your immediate space. Yeah. I had a trip in the in the spring that was pretty amazing. And it was hard to feel freaked out about your life when you're not in it. But then you know when you're going back to it, it's all <laughs> be there. Yeah, well, it's like that. Yeah. You know, remember Sunday nights when you were a kid? Yeah. And you knew, it was like, oh, it's been a great weekend. And yeah. then all of a sudden, it's like Sunday night, and you're like, there's a math test tomorrow morning. Yeah, yeah you knew, yeah. you know it's coming up. Mm-hmm. Did you, was there ever a plan B, like another thing that you could have, because when I struggle with with <laughs> the, the frustrations of this career and stuff, I'm like, I picked it, I picked it. Well, I, I, my saying is, and I say it to everybody, I say it especially to people who want to know how to get in the business, I said, look, this is the game, this is the field, these are the rules, and the only way to lose the game is to leave the field. Right. Because eventually, you will make it. Right. If you stay here, because people churn, it's like, you know, like people churn themselves out of LA. Eventually, of it's going to be your turn. Eventually, it's going to be your turn. You're going to be the sock yeah. that goes from the bottom of the washing machine to the top, eventually. Yeah. And then you'll go back down, then you come back up. One of the other things I took from your post is this thing that it felt like there was times in your life where you you walked away from something you because you knew that the other thing was the right thing for you. And and sometimes I feel like we do what we know is right and we think that everything's going to be okay if we do that. 
And sometimes... I don't have that feeling. Really? No, I don't do... I, no, I'm very much driven by my gut. Yeah. And, you know, I could have... You know, I could still be... But that still is connected to that. It's something inside yeah, you that Yeah, but I don't ever think is... it's going to be okay. I just know, like, I'm strapped into the... Like, you have to do it. I have to do it. Come what may. Come what may. Because yeah. my feeling is, like, I've got to do this. This is the right thing to do. If I don't do this, it'll be way worse. And some, I'll be, something will be okay. Well, I know... I, I know... in intrinsically that I'll be okay because I've always been okay. Right. Do you know what I mean? It always yeah. turns out. But like there are moments when you get on the freaking roller coaster and you're like, wow, I did sign up for this and wow, it's going up that hill and that really is a big hill and I'm like, now I wish I hadn't gotten on this goddamn thing. But then you know at the end of it, unless something really major happens, you're not going to get flung off. You're just going to get frightened and right. thrilled and then you're going to land back. You know, I look at right. it that way. I try to. But you know, you asked. There about, are days where you're like, I didn't know the down part was going to be so long. I oh, thought we had another up part coming. Oh my god! This down part is going on for fucking ever. Yeah, I, you know, I say prayers all the time. I'm like, God, could I have, could I at least have five days of easy? Yeah, that's all I want, just five days of easy. But you asked me about Plan B. Like, I went in 2010. I was done with LA. My like, my love affair with LA was over, and I was about to leave. And I'd gone to Scotland to do a play at the Fringe, and it was amazing. And I'm like, that's it. I love Scotland. I'm moving to Edinburgh. Right. And, you know, like my plan B, like at one time at CBS in the early 90s, I thought about like literally just hitchhiking to Alaska, like leaving all of my shit, leaving the, like going up to Fairfax or walking, like just with the clothes I had on and not, never going back to my apartment, throwing my wallet away and just hitchhiking to Alaska, getting a job in a general store, wearing a red and black flannel shirt all day long and pretending to be a deaf mute. Like that was my idea. Which actually, I love that you thought the fashion through, though. I love it. Like you know what? I like. I can rock some flannel. Oh, I, yeah. I, this is gonna work. Red and black buffalo plaid. I got yeah. it. I'm so there. And I wanted to work in a log cabin-y right. kind of general store. Northern exposure. Totally thing. as a deaf mute. And you were gonna be a deaf mute. Yeah. And um, never speak again. Yeah. And um, and then I thought I'm either going to move to I was either going to move to Venice, Italy. Edinburgh, Scotland, or Charleston, South Carolina, and open a movie theater. Wow. Because you, you, st yeah. you still love it. Yeah, because there's no movie theater in Venice. I couldn't find one in Venice, Italy. I, I was, was just there. there, and I went and saw Godzilla. Did you really? Yes. It, I love here's that the thing about Venice. Times. Oh, really? The yeah. most recent one? Did it make more sense in English? It must have. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, the, the facts and stuff were cool. Here's the thing about Venice. It's like a picture postcard, and then I'm walking around all day, and then I'm like... Okay, I think I need to sit down for a while and yes, and Venice you know, will walk you into the ground. It'll walk you into the ground, and it's—I don't know—it's I like it, but it's not my favorite. Anyway, so you you chose not to move there. No, because I kept getting signs from my dead mother. I'm pretty sure, like books would literally fall off the shelf and hit me on the head, and it would be like book on miracles. Don't give up your dream. You're never too old, or like little things would come up where it was like. Literally, I was getting these very big because I do believe that spirits talk to you, and I believe God talks to me in songs on the radio at billboards. I mean, I need big, broad messages. No, but I relate to that because I get them more. There was a period of time where I was unemployed and really went through Hello. it. Hello, and, it's LA. Yeah, and really went through it, and and uh, anxiety and depression issues and all that stuff. And coming out of that. I get cues from things that I feel are really speaking to me, um, just that are comforting or that, that tell me I'm okay. Or, and I, um, I had a friend, I have a friend named Scott, and one time we went and saw this play called 
oh shit, it was about um, about a couple who were having an affair when the Twin Towers crashed and they could run away together and pretend that they were in the building and they, they weren't or whatever. And he, at one time, he goes, after we came out of the play, he goes, I checked my phone at one point in there and guess what time it was? And I said, 9-11. And he goes, yep. And I go, what do you think that means? And he goes, it means I'm in the right place. So whenever I have those moments where I'm feeling overwrought, but something comes and gives me some peace or whatever, I'm like, okay, I'm in the right place. I'm in the right place. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like you were getting a lot of those. Yeah, I was. And I look for those. I, I think you have to be available to it. Yeah. I, I had one yesterday. Did you really? Yeah. I was not, I'm not feeling great physically and I, I'm, I'm in another stretch of, I don't know what the fuck next. Mm -hmm. And this time I feel like I'm handling it better in my head, but I feel like my body's starting to take it on. You know what I mean? Like I, my stomach, whatever. And I'm not feeling great. And I, I'm reading this book now called The Magazine, which is by um, Michael Hastings, who was the investigative reporter that broke the story on McChrystal and then ended up dying in this weird car crash on, by Melrose Avenue. Mm -hmm. But he wrote about what it was like to work at like Newsweek during the, the Iraq War and, you know, all the editors and stuff getting everything wrong. And, you know, like it was that. And as a former journalist... From the print days, I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. Um, but there was one chapter where a character had lost everything, but he had gotten up and gone to the gym and he was taking care of himself. And I kept waiting for the chapter where the the dark side of it or whatever, but he still jumped or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was like, no, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I got up and I went to the, you know, I had a, I went to the gym and I was like, okay, he's okay, I'm gonna be okay. But it was literally everything I was feeling in that in that page. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, I do. I do feel them. I hear them in songs. I just driving here. I was listening. To, I was like not feeling great, and I was like, but I love doing this podcast. I love. I'm gonna love talking to Doug, and I'm not gonna listen to the radio. There's too much crazy shit going on in mm. terms of the news. I'm gonna pop in a little Indigo Girls, and I got the essential Indigo Girls, and I'm like, I don't know that song. I don't know that. I'm just gonna write it out. And my favorite one came on right as I was pulling up, called "Love Will Come to You." I don't know if you listen to them, but. Anyway, I was like, yeah, okay, that's my favorite one. It's, it's going to be great. okay. Yeah, but I do, I am more open to cues from somewhere else than, than ever. And they, they do mean more to me, and I'm more aware of them, or there seems to be more of them. I don't remember this that much when I was younger, or when you, things were going okay. Well, you just didn't need them. I don't think so. We didn't need shit in the 90s. There was an economy. Oh. Remember the 90s? <laughs> That's just chunks of it. Yeah, there are, there are, yeah, yeah. yeah. bits and pieces. <laughs> yeah. But you were saying you were getting sort of these cues from, from different places. Yeah, so I decided to write it out. So I said, I'm going to give myself six months. And, um, and then I'm going to go be a deaf mute in Alaska. Yeah, or something. Or, or live, you know, I actually, here's what it is. I want to live someplace. And I still do. John and I have an escape plan. And um, it's, I want to live someplace where I can time my day by church bells. <laughs> what was that reaction? I just thought it was beautiful, and it brought up so much stuff. Because religion, I don't think are you, I don't think either of us are particularly religious. I'm not religious. I am spiritual, but I do like the. But the, the if you live someplace where you can hear church bells, there's something beautiful about it. And you know, I was raised Mormon. I never had that much. Uh, I never had that much resentment for it. I just drifted away and, you know, like I wasn't like Mormon damage or whatever. But as I get older, I, I get why people go to church. So do I. Because it's one time of the week where it's not about you. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's and about something else. It's about community. It's about something bigger. It's just not about... It, it, it's a little less self-examining uh, in right. a way. And yet it kind of is, I guess, in a way. But it it's about... Peace. Yeah. It's about... For me, going into... I mean, I don't really have a problem. I mean, I have a problem with the corporate... The corporate identity of what I call religion, organized religion. Yeah. Because it really is a corporation in some sense. But I understand the community. I understand the, the idea. Oh, God. There goes the clinic. Hold on a second. Okay. Um, I understand why people do what they do. Because it's a place to go and just be at peace. Yeah. Oh, you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Doug uh, is running upstairs to turn off, uh, I think it's... It's not us. It's... And while we'll do that, I'm going to uh, get a little plug in here. Um, I would love for you guys to go to the Dennis Anyone Facebook page and take the audience survey uh, because I have a new audience survey on there and it's going to help me get advertising and maybe this can be kind of a little bit of a job. <laughs> that would be awesome. Do you like how I'm so like, please, please? <laughs> no, it's the shit. It's, People you like gotta this. Do, yeah, you it's gotta good. Do it. You got to do it. You so, got to do it. So, no, there's a clinic next door and right. they have an emergency generator. Oh, wow. That, it kicks on. They have to test it like twice a week and... All right. They're randomly testing. The That's generator. okay. No worries. Thank you for taking care of that. Clinic. It used to be. Yeah. Would you see girls coming in and out of there? Oh my God. We would have sometimes we'd have girls in the courtyard, in hospital gowns and like trailing IVs. Yeah. Because they would like get up and literally wander out of the hospital. Oh my God. The worst though was. <laughs> you feel like you almost want to set up a little uh, salon, for like a uh, like a. Oh, Dennis, you have no idea. <laughs> no, maybe you don't. No, you don't. But, <laughs> but like on Saturdays, there was a guy who used to drag a cross all the way around the building, like a, yeah. a cross. Oh, And fuck. I'd go out there and give him water or something because right. it would be hot. And he'd be like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, good morning. Here's your water. Right. And, um, and then they would stand facing the building. They'd stand in the island on San Vicente with like, life, like larger than life-size shots of what an abortion looks like. Oh. And I'm like, okay, so you just know you didn't go out that side of the building. Right. You know? You, that's too much, man. Was, that's was, a lot. But I was always expect. I used to have dreams about like the backside of that building exploding and like, there goes my kitchen. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it was, right. I, I thought it was, I would have nightmares about bombs. Yeah. And things like that. But, you know, we were talking about inspiration and about staying, and I'm glad I did stay. I'm glad I listened because, you know, I met John that year. I got... John is your partner. John's my partner. How long have you guys been together? Three years. Amazing. Yeah, Fantastic. Longest relationship. Longest continuous relationship with somebody I like. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, it good. is. Good. It's, it's really good. And there was a lot of, you know, like just a lot of change happened in that year. I decided to... 2011 I you know I got into a good place physically I got to I went to Australia I just I just did a lot good went to Paris now we talked about sort of the sometimes how how appearances especially with creative things don't always reflect what's really going on when were there moments that were the best either creatively or you know Mm. like I remember my book party for my first novel and it was glamorous and fun, and I was proud, and it was at the chateau, and like it was just oh, like. Oh, you mean when 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 was some... it just like, yes? Well, okay. not necessarily because 
There were chunks. You were there. getting like you know attention or whatever, but how it felt no, creatively no, were... or where you felt like this is what I dreamed of. Well, there were certainly chunks, even during Noah's Ark, where it was amazing. Like, and and that happened actually after the second season. All that really good, f- warm, fuzzy stuff came after the second season and before we did the movie. And there were there was a there was a party for uh, a logo show that we were invited to, and Newsweek, funny you should mention it, was there at the launch party, and it was at East West, which is now Revolver again. Right. And um, they took a picture of it was me, Daryl, Christian, Bob Gant, Robert Gant. Right. Uh, was he on the show? No, he wasn't. He was okay. on Queer's Phone. Right, that's what I thought. And Chad Allen. Right. And we were all, and another friend of mine, Ben, who played Guy on Noah's Ark, and we were all sort of linked together. We were arm around each other. And we were all openly gay actors. Yeah. And we were being photographed for Newsweek. And I thought, this is pretty freaking cool. Look right. at us. It's not just me or it's not just him. It's us. We're this. We're... We're the, the vanguard for something. Right. There's safety in numbers. There's yes. strength in numbers. Well, no. It's just like that we exist at all Yeah, is amazing. And we're going to be in a picture in Newsweek. And then I remember one November going to – that same November going to New York and people recognizing me as I walked through Times Square on a Saturday night by myself. Wow. And, and people – and it made New York really – it was like – there's that guy, there's that guy from Noah's Ark. And I was like, this is freaking amazing. I am famous in New York. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And that's a big deal. That's more, that, to me, that's a bigger deal, but maybe because I'm from back east, but it's a bigger deal to be recognized in New York yeah, because than it is in LA. Yeah, because they don't seem to care that much. Yeah, they're not impressed. Exactly. They're not impressed. You gotta, yeah. but, like, but people would see me on the subway and go, oh my God. And I'm like, yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah. And, um, and it made New York really small and friendly. And there were times when it made the world really connected. Like, I have a friend, Nicole, who I met in front of a cafe in Sieges, Spain, on a, you know, one day. Because Nicole had seen the show and she came running up to me. And she, you know, there were certain people who were fans of the show who became friends of mine because we met at the right place in the right time. Right. So I know that there were times when people really, I really connected with people. But, like, the happiest times of my life usually are on stage. Yeah. When I'm in something that I'm working and it feels really good. Like I've right. done a bunch of plays and I love being on stage. Yeah. And that's when I'm really happiest. And that's when it's really going good. I, I did this play in, uh, believe it or not, I did a all male version of a Greek play called the Bacchae. And oh yeah. Was it the one at the Celebration Theater? It was the same production, but yeah. I was the, I was, I was Dionysus instead of Michael. Okay. Um, and it, is that and what we you did in Scotland at yes, the Fringe? Awesome. And I remember my, whenever I have, this is going to sound, I feel like Sally Field and Whoopi Goldberg when they go to the mall in and Soap Dish. dish. Yeah, goes, yeah, yeah. Hey, is that? And yeah. you just need to feel good. Right. I got a review from the, the Scotsman, which is the biggest paper in, in Scotland. It said, Doug Spearman is every inch the young strutting god. Holy shit. I like that. I think that might be the title of this podcast. Every inch. I like every inch. There's but something dirty and porny exactly. about that. Yeah. Well, the, the, the play was kind of dirty and porny. Were you nude? No. Okay. Uh, but I was, uh, there was just a lot of groping and rubbing and I had yeah. to put a cock ring on a guy. 
Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, it, it literally blew up a relationship of mine. Really? Oh, yeah. Fuck. Um, yeah. It, that scene did? That play. Why, because you enjoyed it a little too no, much? No, no, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't yeah. that I was enjoying it. I wasn't pervy. I mean, like, you, 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 you had to make an agreement with the other actor when you're right. going to do something like that, certainly in front of an audience. So it's hot, like, the first three or four times. And right. then after a while, it's like, ah, oh, it's the matinee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And I called my boyfriend, Andrew, at the time, and I'm like, look. We just discovered this thing in rehearsal. It's going into the play. It's what it is. I'm going to put a cock ring on a guy on stage. Right. I need you to know that before you see the play. And there's a lot of touching and there's a lot of sex and I'm the what, guy. Well, also, sex. I would ask, is it one that you go, you reach around and snap it or is it one where you have to kind of pull well, it Well, here's the thing. I had there's to, different... like, you don't have time to put a cock ring on it. It was a, <laughs> yeah. it was a metal ring. I see. And it was not like like I literally took out his junk and like did the whole routine. Right, because that's a lot of work. I ring lick it okay and then put my hand in his pants and put it in a position where if like i were slipping it in i, see I had to pretend so he just okay. had to go in front of his junk right i don't have time but you know the first time you touch some hot beautiful 24 year old's junk it's kind of yeah. hot and right even he thinks so right but after a while it becomes an agreement that this is what happens on stage it doesn't go any further right how did it blow up your relationship oh my god andrew did not like me touching anybody else ever yeah, and my acting teacher says you cannot run your art through the lens, the prism of other people's morality. Right, and I and he said, well, can you not? Andrew, my boyfriend said we had a big fight. We had a big fight, long fight. That opening night, here's another case of where yeah. everything should be amazing, and like we're sitting in my dressing room, and he's screaming at me. Right. Because of the way that I'm touching these guys on stage. I'm like, it's the play. It's the character. He's like, do you have to do it? Can't you do something? I'm like, yes, I have to do it. Yeah. Yes, I have to do yeah. it. Yeah. You would get that. And, I think certain people get it and certain people don't. And, you know, John gets it. Yeah. Uh, but Andrew was like, Andrew got so mad at me that he walked out and he's like, I'm leaving. And if you want to be single, you can be single. I'm like, this has nothing to do with being single. And right. I'm like, I'm not changing the play for you. Yeah. And he stormed out, and he came back and said, did you hear what I said? I said I was leaving. And I was like, I heard you. You can yeah. leave. Because I knew that if I engaged, it was only going to escalate the thing. And right. I got to see an argument in a relationship from a deep, completely... I saw jealousy for the first time. Yeah. And it was very interesting. And Andrew got so mad that he drove from Edinburgh, Scotland to London. Like, he went yeah. back to our hotel, got his shit, got in the car, and drove to London. Yeah. Which is like being mad at me right now, getting up and driving to San Francisco. Yeah. It's, the, it's nine hours of driving. Wow. And I was like, God damn. Look so he at was that. over there. He was over there. Yeah. The whole point of being over there was to play. Like, I don't know. It seems like... To support you, me. Yeah. To and do, for us to be together. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there are people, that's the thing, is that you have to realize that there are people who are not going to get it, who are going to want to be around you for their own reason. Yeah. Like, I remember I was in bed with some guy. I was dating a guy. I, I met a guy during the inauguration, during the first inauguration. Right. And um, and we had this thing, and it was very powerful, and there was a reason that we came together. And then he came out to L.A., and his phone rang, like, I don't know, the second or third morning that he was here, and it was a girlfriend of his, and he rolled over, and he picked up the phone, and he said, guess who I'm in bed with? And I thought, why would you do that? Because that makes me a trophy. Yeah. He's like, guess who I'm in bed with? You know Noah's Ark? Yeah. And I was like, dude, you're in my bed, you're laying next to me, and you're like, now you're, you know, doing that. That's weird. Yeah. 
That, that, and, that is weird. And, and it's, it's kind of a buzzkill. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was like, okay, we're done. Right. Um, but people do that. You yeah. know, people fantasize. And, you know, we all have fantasies about people. Right. And then you meet them and you're like, oh, they're people. Like, I have to remember that George Clooney puts his pants on one leg at a time. Yeah. He, and, you know, has bad days or, or things like that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and I've met, I've been lucky enough in my life to meet Brad Pitt like three times. Yeah. And what's he Which like? is incredible to me. And I was once years ago in line at a 7-Eleven on Fairfax and Melrose, on Fairfax and Santa Monica with Angelina Jolie buying cigarettes. And it was like, this is crazy. So, like, the people that I've, like, run into and, like, last week, Annie Lennox and having that whole deal. Oh, yeah. We're, we're going to talk about that. Okay. Because I think I want to, I want to, I want to do a little extra segment with you because we, this is about an hour, but I want to keep talking to you. Okay. So, we're going to do, I want to hear, you did an Annie Lennox thing and then I have another a couple of questions that but I want to ask you about. Pitt. Brad if you've ever seen 12 Monkeys, that's yeah. Brad Pitt. Yeah. The, who he is in 12 Monkeys is very much him. Right. But he was one of the coolest guys. And I, like, I, you know, it was just so real and kind of a geek. Yeah. And I was like, and I met him when he first started, the first time I met him and was physically introduced to him was right when he started dating Jennifer Aniston. Right. And I was just like, this is crazy. So I had premier Brad. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I had high octane yes. Brad Pitt. Right. And Where I did bummed, you meet him at? I met him at Courtney Cox's birthday, 30th birthday party. Wow. Yeah. And I was invited by a friend of mine, Deb, who knew them. And she's like, do you want to go to a party with me tonight? And I'm like, who's? She's like, Courtney Cox. I'm like, and Friends was the number one show in the world. Right. You know? So I'm like, absolutely, freaking lootly. And it was yes. an 80s party. And all we did was smoke cigarettes and drink Long Island iced teas. I don't. Th I mean, there's a videotape of me and another black guy dancing with Brad Pitt that I would kill to have. That's amazing. Yeah, but I mean, and all I did was like bum cigarettes from Brad just so I could get him to light my cigarette. Right. I sat on his lap. Anyway, we were all. Dr I was drunk, and he was just such a good guy. He was right. such a good person, and every time I've seen him since then, and it's like twice in restaurants or across a room, he's just been a good man. Does he remember you? Not at all. Yeah. Not at fucking all. I mean, like, <laughs> fuck it, though, if nothing else, the Long Island Ice Teas took care of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He meets a billion people in the world, so. Right. I'm, I'm like, the, I'm a, I'm a dust mode in Brad Pitt's universe. Right, <laughs> mental right, right. universe. Um, but, no, I don't, it's not like, hey, Doug, what's up? How you doing? Yeah. Like, I, like, in my fantasies. Right. But, but the, the point I'm trying to make is that he's a real person, and you have to realize that people are people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's true. Now I'm going to wrap this one up, and then we'll start a fresh one because you did. A, you went to an Annie Lennox event this week. Yeah. That I saw <gasps> that was just transcendent. Yes, it was. All right. So that's our tease. Um, thank you so much, Doug, Doug Spearman. I really admire you. I admire who you are and the choices that you made, and that you go for it, and you do a million different things really well. <laughs> thank you. I think it's awesome. So um, if you want to help Doug's movie out, go Please. to. GoFundMe.com and look up Welcome Sinners. Is there a comma in that? No. No, Welcome not Sinners. in that. No. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone.